Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, your adoption show. I'm April Fallon. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. I'm your host, April Fallon. Welcome to 2024. Yay! We are still telling adoption stories. We did move the show back to Denver, but still recording episodes in Arizona as well. And that's where we are today. People have asked me, why did you move back to Denver? And honestly, I love it in Arizona, but I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I have terrible respiratory issues in the winter here. It's really weird. I can't explain it. I don't know why altitude would be better for me in Denver, but it it is. And so we kind of were forced to move back to Colorado, but we are really loving it. And the kids are doing really well and everybody's adjusting and we're still flying back here doing shows and connecting with guests. And so I'm so honored today to have a returning guest, but not a returning guest for you. <laughs> She was actually on the show in May, and the episode was never released because uh, the producer lost the recording. Yeah, that was a first for us. It was horrible. I just was like crying and praying, and I'm like, I have to tell her that we have to re-record, and I don't know when I can get back to Arizona. But after humbly apologizing, Janelle agreed to come back and re-record. And so she is here today. And you know what? Through everything, I have to trust that God has perfect timing because so much has happened in her story. And even in my own life, um, just looking back and her story and how they collide together, like I needed to go through some more stuff in the next couple months for, you know, the time that we had recorded to right now. So I'm thankful that God knew when we could be together. Janelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Thanks for forgiving me. Oh, you were never held to that. That was just one of those things that happened. I mean, the producer wrote a really nice letter though. Yes. Did you get that letter? I think I did see that I sent it to your yes, publicist. Yes, yes. I was like, okay, he is, he really feels bad about this. I mean, it was like a long paragraph after paragraph about how important the show is and like he would never put our show at danger. So I'm not sure what happened, but I'm happy to have you here today. Yeah. You know, I think Romans 8 and 28 says all things work together for the good and that's what we are going to stand on. That's right. We're going to stand on that. Janelle M. Jones has seven children, two through adoption. She is passionate about early education. She operates multiple early learning centers, and she has a master's in curriculum with an emphasis on working with autism. And she has written a book called Shattered. Janelle, you're so busy and so much has changed in your life, but we're going to go back to the beginning of your adoption journey, and really what your book is about. I know that you had a message with the book, and now your message is kind of changing, and so we'll talk about that too. But let's start at the very, very beginning. So you you met a little girl at church. At the time, you had three biological children. You had a stepdaughter. You adopted your cousin's baby that was diagnosed with autism, and your nephew was living with you at the time? Oh my gosh. So you already had a full house. And so you see this little girl at church. Let's start there. So I met this cute little girl at church. Her name is Mercy in the book. 
Um, and we just had an instant connection. And one day Mercy needed a home. And so my husband said, what's one more? And we took her. And that was it? Pretty much. Yeah. All right. Well, the podcast can be over. <laughs> <laughs> and we lived happily ever after, right? That's what everybody wants to hear. Yes. And that's the hardest thing about talking really about this topic and adoption. It's just because it's often not happily ever after. And sometimes it is, and I've told lots of stories. Yes. But when you're talking about an older child that has experienced trauma that maybe you did not know, you don't. no one can understand trauma unless you have experience trauma, right? right? Like you think, oh, I'll just love her. She's so cute. She needs a home and it'll be a great match. Yes. So when you started that process, was she in the foster care system or? She had been in the foster care system since she was three. And, you know, those are some of the things I've always wondered, like we have all these older children. Why can't we get homes for these older children? And I think that was one of the reasons why I took her in is because we wanted to do our part. We wanted, you right. know, we, we are a good family. You know, we had extra something love. to give. Yes. Extra room in your home. And I am one that believes that we should service others fundamentally. Everything I do services mm -hmm. somebody mm -hmm. and I'm good with children. I love children. So how bad could this be? Right. It, it couldn't be this hard. Right. Okay. So do you go up to the foster family and say, we are interested in mercy? Yes. So the foster family, they were members of our church and the pastor's wife actually said, Hey, little mercy needs a home. Little Nikki at the time is um, what I called her first name. It was like little Nikki needs a home. And I always felt a connection with her. We would kind of, I describe it in the book. We would kind, we would kind of look at each other, you know, in church and wink. Um, so I told the family, Hey, we're interested. And within days we were in a meeting. I should have known then. Right. Right. <laughs> They were like, here's her bag. We're ready. Here you go. Let's move her in. I'm, it happened really quick. And what information did you get? I got the information that she needed a good home, that we were the family that was prayed for. She had this team of people. I remember going into this small room. There was a team of people there and they were like, you guys can do it. Like, She's had some issues, but she really needs discipline and guidance and love. And you're that parent. And here you go. And how could we say no to that? Right? Like, this is this has got to be sent from God. Mm -hmm. How old was she? She was eight. Eight years old. And do you know when she was removed from her home? When she was three. Okay. And I didn't know at the time how many placements she had, which was numerous. Mm -hmm. In your book, you say 20. 21. 21 placements. From three to eight. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. If you had had that information, would that have changed your decision? I don't think that would have changed my decision. Maybe it should have. Knowing what I know now, it would have, I definitely would have looked at things differently. Um, maybe the fact that she had a twin brother that wasn't disclosed to us either. Oh, they didn't tell you about her siblings? Not, not at first, no. Okay. So how long after that meeting did you bring her home? We brought, she was, we had did a couple visits 
So she did a couple overnights, which went really good. And then we, so I believe it was August when we met her, when we were in this meeting, she was with us in October. And mind you, I had like a 14 day vacation in there. So she was with us very quickly. And how did the rest of the family respond? The rest of the family was very welcoming and very receptive. My children, um, they are used to making room for others. We kind of are that house that everybody comes to. Mm-hmm. So we had technically just lost a couple part-time nephews that were living with us. So our house is almost like a revolving door mm-hmm. at the time. Somebody was always in and out. It was just normal for my kids. My kids were getting older, but they were like, hey, what's one more? Right. They were used to that. Mm-hmm. And how did she respond? She was very receptive. I remember she told me, you are the family I prayed for. And Mm -hmm. before we took her in, I think after the second visit, she looked at me and she's like, will you be my forever mommy? Heart melted. It was over. Right. I was in love. Aww. You know? So how do you say no to that? But I didn't know that there were issues mounting because I would call this the honeymoon period. Right. And that can last for, in your opinion, how long? I think it can last for a long time Um, because you got to remember their goal, a child's goal is once they've attached and she was taking me through issues, but they weren't complex issues at the time. They were normal child development issues. And you got to remember, I work with children. Mm-hmm. I work with children and and that have issues. I have a degree in autism. My son had autism. So structure, guidance, discipline, a lot of things that we were in, in encountering, she was having issues in school. Well, she had 21 placements. Right. So she had no educational foundation. So I'm a problem solver. Let's get her tutoring. Let's see if the tutoring can help. But she can't even read at this point. She was in the fourth grade. So let's go back. Let's build this foundation. So a lot of things as I'm going back, trying to get to the root of the problem, and it takes time not understanding that this isn't going to be the solution because it's, it's a lot of work and it's hard for them when they're put in new schools and they can't do the work academically. You know, they're struggling. So, of course, she's going to have problems in school. She can't do the assignments. She's not at the same level as the other children. So a lot of things that we were encountering is I'm trying to put the puzzle pieces together and trying to get her the intervention because I'm not a family that just says, oh, this is hard. I'm one of those moms that is going to dive in and do the work to make her successful. Did she have a diagnosis when she came to your home? She had, she was on some ADHD medication, some mild ADHD medication. She was on clotidine for sleeping. Mm -hmm. So just little stuff, stuff that was familiar to me with my son. Mm -hmm. How old was your son at the time? My son is um, one year older than her. So he would have been nine. Okay. And mind you, I had been through the ringer with him. So even though I got him at three days old, I had experienced him kicking kids teeth out at seven, you know, so, and I knew that it got better. So, so I'm really like, if I just put the work in, if we get her the foundation she needs, she's going to be okay. Right. Oh, 
You know, I just want to stop and say, if you have not experienced trauma in your home, it can be easy to listen to this and feel like, are they making the child the enemy, so to speak? No, we are talking about trauma as the enemy, because there is something that happens in the brain that causes a child to not be able to find a solution, right? It's more than just I struggle in school. It's more than just I'm angry. It's more than that. It's a it's a brain chemistry change. Yes. And it is it's very much so. This reaction to love. Yeah. And you know, so in my preschools, um, I have early head start grants and we work with specifically with children that experience trauma, right? And we say that trauma changes the very DNA of a child. Mm. And it's that significant. Now, one of the things that we discount is the impact of trauma and what's trauma to a child. What's trauma to you, to me may not be the same as what's mm-hmm. traumatic to you, but it doesn't make it trauma. It does not right. negate the fact that it's trauma, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the real issue is understanding what has been done to a child and how impactful that is. And when you don't even know the true story, how do you even know that she's been in that? And then we discount what early intervention can do, what getting them in the right therapy, what getting them in the right services can do, because we don't understand the true impact of the trauma. What are some of those signs that there's deeper trauma than just, oh, she hasn't been at the same school, so she's going to have to catch up. You know, what are those signs where you say, okay, something else is going on? You know, for me, it took a long time to figure those signs out because there were so many different issues that we were being hit with. And then the fact that Here's the thing, you know, I'm getting notes that she's having a bad day at school, that she's fighting, that that she's defiant. She's kind of defiant at home too. But there were certain things I just had to start listening to my gut on. I remember there were times I would be like, you know, it feels like I'm talking to two different people mm. or there's no memory. She has no memory and it's not a lie of an incident that just took place or that was a really bad story. Did that really happen? Because as she became more comfortable with us, she shared more information with us. And then I'm getting all these stories that I describe in the book and I'm like, whoa, what? Whoa, how? Whoa, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember one time I was in therapy and not, she came back from therapy and the doctor started saying, you know, there's more, there, there's more things that happened here that are very significant that you don't know about. She was stealing, you know, she was fighting, she was defiant. She was just ungrateful and and not appreciative and unloving. And then sometimes she was sweet and kind and, the best thing ever. But one of the things I would say that was consistent is she was one way with me and totally different with everybody else. Hmm. Better to you? She's always good to me. Interesting. Usually it's the mom. Yeah. So she didn't get along with your husband? She got, she gets along with mommy and daddy. Mm-hmm. 
and actually even her siblings to a certain degree, except when um, my boys, like she would do stuff, um, like she would steal gushers and they would get mad at her. So when the perfect princess modality would wear off, then it would be like, oh, I don't then she would kind of have an ought with them and she would come at them. But as long as you made her believe that she was just the best thing ever, she was good. Okay. So as soon as you say no, that's when you would start to see the change. No is a horrible thing for her, even still. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people are listening to this and they're like, yeah, all kids don't like the word no. This is different. This This is more extreme than you would ever believe. Your book talks about extreme things. And I think sometimes it's hard to understand daily things that we do as human beings, as parents, are hard for children with trauma. And one of the things in your book, you're talking about how, you know, just like you would get up and you get in the shower and you would do your thing. You're like trying to get her to get in the shower and she's like freaking out. And then she tells you that she was abused horribly in the shower. And you have all these triggers that you don't even know are triggers. You don't know the stories. And so it's like uh, walking over landmines, right? You're not exactly sure when she's going to explode. And then trying to get to the bottom of it. Was there ever a time where she was telling you a story where you're like, that can't be true? You know, I think I always believed her. Mm -hmm. And even still, it's funny, she will lie. But she won't lie about that type of thing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, she'll lie about not taking this or eating that, but she doesn't lie about what's happened to her. And when she tells me, we've gotten to the point where she tells me for action because she knows mm-hmm. I'm going to handle it. Right. She knows I'm going to lose it. Um We've had, there are some incidents in the book that I described um, when something bad happened to her and she actually felt like she was going to, I think she felt like she was dying. And she said to me, she goes, I just knew I had to make it to you because you would handle it. And she's like, and when I got to you, the next day the cavalry came in. So I think she doesn't want to stop that connection of if I go to my mom and I tell her the truth and she tells me the truth on things that are icky when it's in regards to something that's happened to her. Okay. So she has trust with you. Would Mm -hmm. you say that she attached to you? She's very attached to me. Okay. So does she not have reactive attachment disorder? She does with everybody else. Okay. But she has been able to attach to me. So it's really weird. And they still call it rad, right? Uh Because she's bonded with me. But I'm wondering if it's a trauma bond. (laughs) 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 Like I've just put my mom through the ringer. So now they're one. But she Hmm. has a hard time trusting and attaching to anybody else. Okay, you said that you wrote this book because you wanted to empower others with the information needed so they can be aware of how the system works. You said you wanted to be able for people to ask necessary questions that give the information they need to build a family. When you sat in that meeting, what questions do you wish you asked? How many placements did she have? Why was she moved so many times? Has she ever been raped? Has she ever been around children that have been raped? 
and what happened in her biological family that caused her to be removed. Does she have RAD as one? You know, what has she been tested for? What has she not been tested for? What are you not telling me? Right. Why has she been moved mm-hmm. in all these different places? And, you know, they said, I said it in the book, they told me, um, they've told me before that if they would have told me, I would have never, I may have never adopted her. So what are you telling, what are you not telling me because you think I won't look at this child any further? Right. Well, the issue is also when you don't tell the whole story, you haven't prepared the family and it can destroy the family. Yes. Because for a child that has experienced sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. you need to protect your typical children that are in the household. They need to be treated differently. You need to watch them differently. Or you can have your typical children being preyed on. And nobody wants that. You're perpetuating the problem. You're making more victims. Mm -hmm. And we see this. We even see this, you know, in the group homes and other other things. They don't have a way of putting these children in categories and keeping them away. Children that have been sexually abused really should not be placed with children that haven't been. And really children that have been sexually abused should be housed differently. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't get to share a room at all. Maybe they're, you know, I don't, there are measures that need to be put in place to stop the victimization of other children. And that's just something that people don't talk about because they just want to make sure the kids have a safe home. But they're not thinking about what's happening in the home. I have seen time and time again, very healthy, loving families turned upside down. I have seen divorces. I have seen the act, the biological children or typical children, as you call them, turn upside down and have trauma, right? What is it called? Secondary trauma. Yeah. So the, their trauma brings in all this other trauma. Everybody in the family is going to therapy. I mean, it is it is something you really have to think about. And what really makes me sad is why isn't there a solution when a child has trauma and 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 rad, why is there not a healing solution? You know, and I feel like it's even deeper than that because in my journey of mental health with my daughter, one of the things that I'm seeing is the therapies and the solutions that they have, if they're being implemented, they're not working. So do they have a different diagnosis? Is there what is really going on? And we're not talking about this enough Mm -hmm. in a manner to where we're really able to get the answers because everything is so hidden and you have to go through so many layers to find it. You never can get to a solution because it takes you so long. You only have so much time with these children. Their brains are developing. And if we could provide intervention during key stages of this brain development, we could help them even the more. But when you're trying to, when you have to play inspector gadget to find the story out, you're missing crucial time. And that's really the problem. We can't get to therapy if we don't know the story. That is absolutely so true. How do we make sure that we get the full story? Yeah. I mean, we're asking questions. You're preparing, right? We have shows like this preparing people. I think one of the 
most difficult things is, like you said, the very beginning, when the church says, take your responsibility up and, and help these children and do something, do your part. And really, if they don't have experience in it, the pastor themselves, they're actually just telling people, bring destruction into your home, right? And this right. doesn't always happen. I just want to say that caveat. Like, this doesn't always happen. In fact, some children have gone through trauma and have been very resilient and yes. connected and healed yes. and attached in their family. And you don't see any of these issues. But a majority of the children who have gone from home to home, they they stop caring about the people around them and they think about only themselves. And it, it's very almost selfish of preservation, right? Mm -hmm. I, I care about me. So I can attack you anytime. You even said in the book, she was threatening to kill you. Mm -hmm. Everybody. Mm -hmm. Yes, she was. You know, and I think when you go back to one of the things that you said that just stuck to me is, yeah, we do have some that are very good and they, they're very good stories, but one family being lost is too many. You know, what makes that family not as important and if we are going to do this as a church, you know, I think some of the problems with the church, it, it needs to start before the child even comes into the home. Our laws have to be different when these children are entering the system. It's trauma enough for a child to lose their home, to lose their mom and dad, whether they were a wonderful family and something happened and, and now they're in the system or whether they were horrible family, a family, the it's, that is traumatic in itself, just the move. And then to go into a system and the system is not set up for success. But the problem is I feel that the church needs to say, you know what, what is going on in, in this system? We may not be able to take every child in, in that's in the system, but we need to have standards. We need to keep these children safe. So when they, when we find the families to adopt them, that this can be a safe experience. Mm -hmm. We need to be looking at these children and placing them in categories where we're like, okay, this is, this is the child for you. You're able to handle this, fam this, because there are some, there's some families that are going to take the children that have been sexually abused. Some of them will be okay with that, but don't throw that child to a family that can't handle it. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to do assessments to where we're putting these children in the places they need to be. And that's the standard needs to start with the church. It, it has to start with us where we're saying, you know what? The God has, God talks about our children. God talks about how we need to treat our children. And I think we need to put that back and say, wherever it has to go, whether it's the legislature or whatever, we are not going to harm these children any anymore. And we are going to hold you to a standard if you do. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that going back to that time, you could see how frustrating it is to have a child that is so disobedient or lies to you constantly mm -hmm. or breaks all your things or ruins family times or is attacking your biological children. You become a person that you didn't even know you could become, right? There's yes. this anger that sits inside of you. You're parenting in a different way. You don't even know how you're parenting anymore. You don't even feel like you're connecting with your biological children anymore right. and everything is upside down. 
I want to know what you did when you found out that she was a twin. So I did find out that she was a twin before the adoption. Um, And when I found out that she was a twin, the separation from her twin, um, I describe it in the book, was absolutely horrible. It was inhumane, for a lack of better word. Um, I have to make the comment that it was so bad that if we do this to children, we really need somebody to stop us. Like it Mm -hmm. is just, we cannot treat people this badly, especially a child that you're ripping away from their twin brother. But the first thing I did was get in contact with the twins mom, um, because I wanted to reunite them. And that's what should have been done all along. Even if they had been separated, they should have kept, they're, they're a part of each other. They finish each other's sentences for goodness sake. And you're going to rip them away and let my daughter think that she'll never see her brother again. So the first thing I did was get in contact with the woman that had adopted her brother. And how did that go? She was so relieved Uh, because she was there for the separation and she had been traumatized for it. She had actually tried to get my daughter um, to bring to, to adopt my daughter, but she just didn't have a home that was big enough. So um, she made the comment. She's like, I've prayed and prayed and prayed for this child. So again, my child was harmed. Her twin was harmed. And even the mother of the twin brother was harmed all in the way the state separated them. Why did they do it that way? I just think because they're not smart. I think because they have no paternal instincts and they're not nurturing and they don't understand trauma. They're so busy causing trauma to these children. But the home that they were in, they were being abused. You talk about it in the book. Mm -hmm. And do you think that they were like, we have to get them out right now to save them from this you know, abuse from, they're abused by their biological family. They're in a foster family. They're getting abused. Let's get them out. I don't know what they were thinking. Um, but I, no, I just don't, I just don't think the person had any clue about child development. We need to put laws in order when it comes to twins. It's, you know, I understand that when you're, she's from a family of 10. I understand not being able to keep 10 children together, but The brother, the twin brother was placed with her other two siblings. Well, why didn't you keep the twins together? Mm -hmm. Versus if somebody shouldn't have been split up, it was the twins. They were born together. They've been together in the womb. It's interesting that you say that because I would have to agree with you, but not 100%. And that's how I feel on the show all the time. I'm like, I have to agree with you but not a hundred percent because there's always this story that emerges. Right. Right. And I've told on the story before that there were twins in Florida and it was my attorney that had custody or she was, they, they somehow had gone into the foster care system, but, and she's an adoption attorney. I don't know how she was connected, but every time they move these kids, the two of them with the trauma bond tore the entire home up. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was just like a tornado. And so it got to the point where the family's like, we can't take them and they couldn't find anyone to take them. And so at that point, they were like, should we separate them? Because otherwise they don't have a home. Mm -hmm. And so they did it in a way where they found two homes that were 
willing to work together so that they knew that they would have a relationship. But it wasn't until they were separated that they actually healed. Because together they were just reinforcing that trauma constantly. Mm -hmm. And so they were separated and they did grow and they were able to see each other. Their Mm -hmm. family were friends and it worked out. And her and I would talk about this all the time. Like, oh my gosh, if you would have told me that, I would have been like, absolutely not, never separate them. But then look, there was this situation. I think it's the way that we handle these relationships too. I agree. Right? Yeah. And I, I, and I agree, but I think that when it comes to twins, if there's going to be a separation, I think a team should decide and not the caseworker. Mm. You know, I think that facts should be looked at, but I think it should be the last option. And I like the fact that they kept them together. They're with families and they can see each other and they can have a relationship. Mm. But that was not the case here. Do you think if they would have kept them together, they would have done better? I don't know. But I think that my daughter, so it was interesting. My daughter initially had said that her brother, he, he needed to be with them, with, with the siblings. Um, and she kind of made it sound like, well, we made a choice and it was him, but that wasn't the story, right? She was trying to make it feel better. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time I, I, she was crying in my arms and I said, it wasn't that you weren't loved. She just didn't have room for you. Mm-hmm. And she just broke down and was sobbing. So really the root of it was she thought they didn't love her. Mm -hmm. She thought that she wasn't good enough to be adopted. She thought it was a personal attack on her. And they let this baby live like that for years. You bring up a really great point that I just want to take a moment and say that I have been doing lately with my four. I think it's really important to sit your child down and have them tell you what they think their story is. Because I know that we tell the story, right? We talk about it a lot. They know about their biological parents. We have open adoptions. But it's interesting when I sat down with Lily, my second, and said, what's going on? What Talk to me. She was upset all the time. And, and it was coming out in other ways. She mm-hmm. wasn't like, I'm mad about my adoption. It was like she was spraying potpourri in her hair. She <laughs> was, you know, dismantling things. She was self-harming, banging her head. And, and I've said, you know, talked about these episodes that we'd have where she'd bang her head and it looked like we hit her with a frying pan. I mean, she'd hit it on her knee. It's like, what is going on? So sitting down and talking to her and saying like, what? let's talk about your adoption. What do you think happened? And in her mind, I took her from her biological mom that I came in and took her and she felt resentful towards me. And I, my brain exploded. I was just like, what? Let me tell you, your mom asked me because she was doing drugs. She was putting bad things. This is when Lily was little. And I, I might've told the story on the podcast before, but your mom was not in the place they were going to take you away. And she asked me to take you. And so we had a partnership and I promised her that I would care for you and that I would love you. She was bawling, just like you said that Mercy was doing. Like this belief that they had that, Maybe I came down and I swooped her out of, you know, her mom's arms and, or children think, oh, they didn't love me or they didn't care about me. And when you hear those words 
and you can correct that narrative while they're young, that brings so much healing. Instead of later on when they're at the counselor, when they're 23 and they have all these rejection issues and they can't figure it out. And then they go all the way back to, well, I think my mom stole me from my biological mom. It was like, I did not realize that even though I'm saying the story to them, how they are hearing it. Right. You have to sit them down and say, how are you hearing this? What is the narrative that is going on in your head? If you can really see that sometimes this behavior is, is really coming from a lie that they're believing and that's the job of an adoptive parent. That's different than a biological parent. I mean, they believe right. lies too, right? But our job is to kind of look at behavior and go, okay, is this a bigger story than just like, oh, they're just acting like a normal five-year-old or they're just, you know, because people come in and go, oh, that's just normal behavior. But as a mom, sometimes you know, you're like, it's in my intuition right, right. to know this is not normal. This is stemming from something else. And the Holy Spirit obviously leads and guides us. But I, I just wanted to say that because how important it was for you to sit down with her. And you've spent so much time mm -hmm. with this little girl trying to get her <laughs> to heal. How has the other part of your family responded to that? I think a lot of things that she was doing at the time, they'd never seen. Mm -hmm. They kind of were like, mom, she's ungrateful and she doesn't get it. And like, what is going on? Um, and I think some of the defiance they had a hard time with because they they just weren't those type of children. My children are typically very well behaved and they're very kind and considerate and loving. And Mercy is, I call it naturally rude. <laughs> um, <laughs> and sometimes I'd be like, oh, you're just rude and ungrateful, right? And it was and it's and it's been something that's been very difficult to get out of her. Um, sometimes I'll see her be like, oh, like grateful, but you would think because a child didn't have it and then received wonderful things, they'd be appreciative. But right. some of that was a misconception on my, my part, because I remember one day I was talking to her and she said, mom, I really feel bad because I think about my twin or I think about my other siblings and I feel bad because I know they don't have what I have. And so she didn't know how to accept what she had because her, because she worries about her other siblings too. Do you think that your children missed you as you were pouring into the new child, Mercy? Absolutely. Do you think they were like, but we also need you? Absolutely. Um, even my nephew my nephew had come in and he was, it was interesting because at one point he was like, oh, somebody's worse than me. <laughs> right. <laughs> so all the attention could go on her. But then at a certain point they were like, yo, wait, what about, what about us? Because I'm a very hands-on parent. You know, I'm at every game. I'm at every parent-teacher conference. I'm, and I still was showing up. But emotionally, right. I wasn't there, right. you know, so I was going through the motions, but emotionally um, I was damaged. And then there were issues of life going, you know, um, in this adoption, I had to in adopting her. And when all hell broke loose, I had to start selling my businesses because I, I had to downsize. I was trying to I was really trying to if I can just get rid of obligations and 
I make the sacrifice, I can work on my career later. But it it wasn't. So there was I was spread and scattered so much trying to keep everything together. She ends up in a mental institution. Is that what happened? At what age? <sighs> so she ended up, my goodness, she ended up at age 10, starting age 10, starting to go in and out of psychiatric hospitals. And it's leading to residential treatment centers. Um, I describe in the book this journey of going hospital to hospital, residential treatment center to residential treatment center, all that started around 10 when she just started unraveling. And did she have to stay there? Yes. Okay. So initially it was, they were, it was short. Um, And then as time progressed and her behaviors weren't getting better, um, she ended up being in one for like six months and then, you know, she got out. But some of them, she couldn't make a month because her behavior, she was getting kicked out of, getting kicked out of the mental hospitals. Imagine that. How, how do you do that? You know, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> like I'm. Um, she must be very, very smart. I don't know if she's very, very star- smart or very, very challenged. But how could you, I mean, the mental institution is like the end all be all, right? Like that, they know what to do. That's what we think, right? They're not what they're cracked up to be. So they did not give her the help that she needed. But in the book, you say she couldn't come back with you because she was a risk. What Mm -hmm. made her a risk? She was too violent. She, at the time she was too violent. She wanted to cause harm to me and my, my, my family. But you said that she loves you and is attached to you. So how do you reconcile with that? I just don't think she knows. I think that she is so angry and so traumatized. She doesn't, I don't think she wants to hurt me, but I don't think she can help but to, but to lash out. It's, there's fits of rage. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she, because when she does it, I've seen her kind of almost black out. And when she comes to her eyes are big and she's like, what did I do? What did I do? Mm -hmm. What did I do? And those are the scariest times with her. It's funny in the book, I described this one and they're calling me and they're like, she's perfect. She's an angel. I'm like, "Mm, you got three more days. And they're like, what? And they're like, we're going to discharge her. And I kind of chuckled. I was like, she'll never make it to Monday. And by Monday, they're calling. They're like, oh, my God, she she did this and she did this. And I'm like, "Mm, told you. And that particular one I talk about in the book, we're on a meeting on Monday. So much happened over the weekend that we're on a meeting on Monday. And the lady's like, so we're going to discharge this week. And I was like, really? Did you check your emails? And she's like, no. And I was like, check your emails. And there's, you know, all these things that she had done. And I was like, and they were like, oh. And I was like, yeah, I told you. I was like, I wouldn't have these letters and this documentation if it wasn't true. We just hadn't got through the time period. She only can be good for so long. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. Um, And I think... Probably the most unfortunate thing about it, when I think about when she was home, 
we had worked her time period out gradually to where she could be good for maybe three weeks at a time. You know, it, it, we were having incidents and we were able to, to stretch them. But then if there's a major event that happens, it'll send her back to only being able to be good for an hour at a time or a day at a time or three days at a time. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so sad because um, not being in my care, sometimes I look at them and I'm like, but if we did this, this would work. But every time we go through somebody else, they have to learn it for themselves because nobody mm-hmm. takes. So it's always starting over. Yeah, and nobody mm-hmm. listens to me. It's like, I know her very well if you listen to me. And then sometimes after a couple of weeks, they come and they're like, okay, we're ready to listen to you. Mm-hmm. But harm has come to my child because you wouldn't listen to me. The thing that I love about you, Janelle, is that you've been through all of this. And yet I'm sure our listeners can hear that you love this child. Usually by this time, the parent has shut down completely. You're not even sure if there's like love in their heart, right? They <laughs> they just feel so brutally abused by the situation and they've given everything that they can't be an advocate anymore. They're so burnt out. And yet you're still talking about her in such love and such grace and understanding. And yet your life has been really hard because of the things that she's done. How do you find that place to still advocate and love her? You know, I've had to learn how to care for myself. So this self-care thing is super important. And I've had, and I have to get a lot of therapy too. Unfortunately, my therapy bills are ridiculous and it's not covered by insurance, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's funny, I'm in trauma therapy twice a week. Um, right now I'm on a little bit of a break, but there's a lot of times we can't go work with my deeper issues because we can't get past the issues of the week of mercy. (laughs) Right. 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 There's so many and you, and I've actually had to find other outlets because I can't use my husband. I can't use my Mm -hmm. friends because people are just like, why are you still doing this? And, and is that like, what they say? Not really. Why are you still doing this? Some do, but it's almost like you see them emotionally check out because it's things that nobody can handle. Mm-hmm. And that is such a lonely place, Yeah, you know? And so I've really had to learn how to still away, um, how to rest and how to give myself what I need and honor myself in it and really have gotten to the place some really bad things happen and I've had to be realistic. You know what? We're going to do the best that we can do. And that's all we can do. And everything else I have to lay at Jesus's feet. Mm -hmm. And I pray all the time, all the time. I mean, that's probably the one thing somebody asked me, somebody's like, I think you have no balance because you talk about God all the time. And I say, that's because God is my everything. Right. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God's grace and mercy. And he is my everything. And he's the only reason why. And I just have to be diligent at those things. And some days are really hard. And some days I'm a mess. Mm -hmm. And it is what it is. Well, the story continues. So Janelle is going to do another episode with us. 
I feel so blessed that not only did she come back, but she's going to do another episode because we're going to hear a little bit more about Mercy's story and where she's at now. And you have changed your your platform, your new advocate for something else. I mean, I think that God has taken you through all of this to show you all the things that are happening in these mental institutions in what's going on um, with our foster care system, what's going on with trafficking, which we're going to talk about next episode. I'm also going to give an update on Malia because you're the one who helped me with her. (laughs) And I was homeschooling last time that we recorded this. And I just want to give an update of how she is and the advice you gave me that helped her so much. Janelle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Again, her book is called Shattered and her name is Janelle M. Jones. All right. We will see you next week, Janelle. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our website, adoptionnowpodcast.com and follow us on social media. Thanks for joining us on your adoption show. See you next episode. (laughs) 